You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When we're feeling depressed or sad or just stressed out, we feel alone in that stress. It's a very me sort of activity. But when we reach out and remember, oh, there are other people all around me. I belong to a community. This burden is not just mine. Everybody can carry a little bit of the water. That's when we remember we're not alone. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is committed to helping clients through any market conditions with financial planning and advice when you need it most. Learn more at fidelity.com. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And I just want to take a minute at the top of this show and just say that I and my entire team, all of us here at Her Money, we are thinking about you right now. We know that it is tough out there. Some of you are hunkered down at home. Most of you are hunkered down at home. And some of you may have had your lives altered in bigger ways, perhaps forever, due to the coronavirus that is sweeping the country, we are here for you. We hope that our show can be a bright spot in your day. And because we were looking for a bright spot, we are so thankful to have the lovely and talented Tara Schuster with us on the show today. Tara is an author, a playwright, an accomplished entertainment executive. She's actually Vice President of Talent and Development at Comedy Central, and her impressive career includes roles on Lights Out with David Spade, Key and Peele, The Daily Show. Earlier this year, she released her first book, which is called By Yourself, the effing lilies, and other rituals to fix your life from someone who has been there. Sounds like what we all need right about now. Tara, thanks so much for being here. We are thrilled to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I want to start by just talking about you. How did this career come about? I, as I was reading about you and learning a little bit more about you, I'm thinking this woman is Andy Cohen. She's <laughs> just on a different network. That's the nicest thing you could ever say to me. I love Andy Cohen. I'm a huge Bravo fan. I didn't set out to be a development executive at all. I just knew I wanted to do something in the entertainment world. That was always what I was drawn to. And Comedy Central was where I got my, where I kicked in the door. <laughs> I got my first uh, little break after an internship on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. I always knew I wanted to be a part of telling stories. And so everything in my career has sort of had that as a common theme. Even, you know, writing the book is all a bit about sharing stories and bringing entertainment and hopefully making people feel a little less alone. That's sort of, if I had to boil it down, it's storytelling and making people feel less alone is what I'm after. I love that. And I think that is exactly what the book does. Let's start with that title though. What does it mean to buy yourself the effing lilies and why yeah. should we all be doing it? Yeah. Um, well, I'm so glad you asked because it's it was a huge moment in my life. So basically, I grew up in a house where things came to die. The pets, the plants, 
Coco the Himalayan cat was <laughs> taken by coyotes under cover of night. It was chaos. And I came out of that house not really knowing how to be a person. And I kind of was spiraling out of control emotionally, even as I was able to hold it together on the outside. So I was going, I went to Brown on a, you know, I had scholarships and loans and going to this fancy college, but a complete mess inside. Or I got this job at Comedy Central, but I was uncontrollably weeping on the subway on the way home. I didn't know how to deal with all of my anxiety and depression until I hit rock bottom when I drunk dialed my therapist on my 25th birthday asking for help. And that next morning, listening to her voicemails and how worried she was about me, I got really worried. I, for the first time, took it seriously that this is not a life I'm going to be able to lead. I've really got to change things, but I don't even know how to change a vacuum cleaner filter. Like, I don't, I don't know how to do any of the basic things, much less change my life. And so I decided, you know, I'd always been a good student, always been good at work. What if I attack this like a school project? So I opened up my trusty Google document and I said, this is going to be a Google document of reparenting myself. What, what are values? Reparent, because that is a term that I don't think I've ever heard before. Yeah. So for me, what it means and what it meant at the time about 10 years ago was I didn't have parents if I really want to nurture myself. And what I mean by I didn't have parents is I didn't have what you would traditionally call parents. You know, I, there was nobody assuring me that I'd be safe or giving me structure or unconditional love. So I decided it's time I give those things to myself because if I don't, no one will. And I'm tired of being neglected. Like, I'm not going to neglect myself. So the reason I said at the time reparent was because I also understood that I'd have to go back and look at some of my traumas, that I couldn't just move past it because moving past it was reducing me to tears in the subway. Like, that strategy just didn't work of repressing, suppressing. That that didn't work for me. So it was going to be a reparenting where I'd go back to those wounds and heal them with gentleness and kindness. But I didn't know how, you know, I I didn't have some game plan and I didn't have in mind that I would one day write a book about it. I just wanted to save my life. And so this is a very long way of getting to your question about the lilies because in this Google doc, you know, I was asking questions like what are values, what are principles, what are vegetables? Genuinely, what are they? And, and which ones should I eat? What, what, what would be good? <laughs> Still searching for some of those answers. But one of the main questions I had was, am I worth $7 lilies? Because I would go to Trader Joe's to buy my budget um, microwavable Indian dinners, and I would see the lilies in their weird bucket of water. I would uh, fantasize about how elegant they are and how when they bloom, they just let out this burst of perfume and they make any room more calming. And wouldn't they make my studio apartment just sing? Like, wouldn't they make my life better? But no, I'm not worth $7. I can't spend that. They're just going to die. I'm not worth it. That's not worthwhile. I'm being ridiculous. And I would do this to myself weekly. You know, meanwhile, I'm really 
working as hard as I can at my job. I'm working as hard as I can at my emotional health. And yet I'm neglecting myself and not giving myself this small indulgence. And after a couple years of being in this process, one day at Trader Joe's, I just said, F this. I am worth $7 lilies. I am worth the small luxury that makes the rest of my life better. And so that's one of the main messages in the book is that we don't grow stronger by denying ourselves and saying, I'm not worth it and tearing ourselves down. And for me, that's what self-care is all about. We actually grow stronger when we treat ourselves well and give ourselves the nurturing we know we need. And I think it can be really easy to confuse self-care with a vacation to Tulum. You know, I've got nothing against Tulum, love it, great place, but going to Tulum is not self-care. I love a fancy face mask, a fancy facial, also not self-care. Self-care is actually about an honest accounting of the emotional wounds you have that need healing and then bringing those things to your daily life through small practical rituals like getting yourself the $7 lilies like having a um, drawer full of socks without holes, like treating yourself as well as you would a guest coming into your own home. There are all these daily rituals that, that really take care of ourselves much more than any luxury. So that is where the title comes from. Some of the rituals that you chronicled in the book made a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, I think the lilies aren't necessarily where I go for self-care, but the giving myself the half hour to exercise without checking my phone every five minutes, that, you know, that I give myself and I, and I do that on a regular basis. I wanted to break down a few of these rituals though, because I think that our listeners, especially right now, are going to find them helpful. We're talking an awful lot about gratitude, and I think it can be hard to find at times like this. You say fake gratitude until you actually feel gratitude. How do you do that? Yeah, um, I'm so glad you you brought that up because I was the biggest non-believer in gratitude ever. So when I started on this self-care journey, I went to a friend's house in Maine for a little vacation. And I was so anxious about two men who didn't like me. And the soundtrack of that whole trip was nobody likes me. I am not liked. How do I get them to like me? Just a diss track on repeat in my brain. And my friend Isabel, who invited me to Maine, her cousin Lizzie came to visit. And, and Lizzie's one of these people who she went to Harvard became a professional ballerina, and then just decided to become a lawyer. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, that's pretty annoying, to be honest with you. Yeah, like, we hate her. We hate her. She's beautiful and kind and has never, doesn't have a mean bone in her body. I fully hate her. And she suggested, she said, well, have you tried um, a gratitude list? That might be a way to get out of your anxiety. And I thought, have you tried flinging yourself into the water? Because I think that's appropriate right now. <laughs> I completely resisted her. I thought, you are so privileged and entitled. You have nothing to, to, to teach me. But because I was at a 
point in my life or on a good day, I was openly weeping on the subway. I wasn't really in a position not to try. So I started out faking gratitude. So I'd write 10 things I was grateful for every day and I'd just force it. Like, I'm grateful for water. I'm grateful for this stupid trip. I'm grateful for espresso. I'm grateful for clean sheets. But as soon as I started faking it, I realized, wait, I, I am grateful for these things. And, and I actually do have a complete inventory of things that I'm grateful for. I had completely taken um, for granted my health, for example, the health of my family. There were so many things that I was not appreciating. And so, you know, nine years later, I've been writing 10 things I'm grateful for every day. And there's nothing like 32,000 reminders of all the things you have to be grateful for that can really reframe your perspective. And so I thought gratitude lists were woo-woo and stupid and for the wildly privileged. What I didn't realize is they are a lifeline for anybody who wants to kind of reframe an experience to be something more positive and something that they can really take away from the experience with. I mean, even something like this horrible pandemic, there are a lot of things to be grateful for. Um, you know, for me, it's, I'm connecting with my high school friends. You know, I haven't talked to some of them in five, 10 years. All of a sudden we have a Sunday night Zoom where we all get together. I'm getting introduced to people who I never would have met just through Instagram, other thinkers in my space who were just trying to help people. So we're kind of talking about how do we do this? There's this great author, Jen Pastoff. I was a huge fan of her work. We just started DMing, you know, like how do we help people? What can we do now? If it hadn't been for this, would, would she have crossed my path? My path? I don't know. So I think, you know, right now, if you're thinking about how can I kind of reframe the situation, starting a gratitude list and not worrying about the gratitude list, not worrying, am I going to be able to fill out 10 things? If, if you can't, again, just lie, lie about things you'd like to be grateful for one day, but get it, make it a habit, make it a ritual. I love that. And I want to dive a little bit more deeply into some of the things that we can also do for other people during yes. this time. But before we get there, let me just remind everyone that her money is supported by Fidelity Investments. For more than 70 years, investors have relied on Fidelity to help plan for their financial futures. And as always, when the unexpected happens, Fidelity is there to help you work through it with financial planning and advice for what you need today and tomorrow, helping to make it all clear. To see how Fidelity can help you and your family on the path forward, visit fidelity.com. I am talking with Tara Schuster, Vice President of Talent and Development at Comedy Central, author of the new book, Buy Yourself the Effing Lilies. So we want to do nice things for ourselves. We want to make sure that we are giving ourselves what we need. But I think right now we also need to be doing that for other people. What do you think the best ways are to elevate other people's spirits? Yeah, I think it's an essential question, you know, that we have a responsibility to our communities, especially in a crisis. And I'd say, you know, first, self-care is good for you, but it's also good for your community. 
because it's just like in those safety videos you, you watch on an airplane where the oxygen mask descends from the sky and the mom very, you know, I'm skeptical she'd be this calm, but calmly puts it on her face before she puts it on her child's. We can't help other people unless we ourselves are stable and present and feeling okay about ourselves. So the first thing about self-care is that it is, a, it is a benefit to your community. But then how do you more actively um, be a benefit to your community? I think one of the number one things we need to do right now is reach out and especially reach out to the people we think might not want us to reach out. I've noticed people will say to me, something terrible happened in Ellen's life, but I don't want to reach out because I don't want to offend her. I don't want to be too pushy. That is so not real. Let Ellen decide that she doesn't, let her tell you, I appreciate that you reached out, but I, you know, I, I'm dealing with my own process right now. I think it's actually more often than not um, kind of cowardly when we don't reach out to someone who we have that we suspect might need that. So I would say go through your life and who are the people who are particularly vulnerable right now who, who need to hear from you. We, we all have friends who suffer from anxiety and depression. We'll hear anecdotally that a friend has been laid off. Reach out to that friend and see how you can be a help. Um, so that would be the first thing is just reaching out to the people that you know. I think it's so important. I Like many families, my family had a Zoom Seder last mm. night. And my aunt called me after. And, and let me just say, with no offense to my aunt and uncle at all, but you know, it took us a long time to just get them on the Zoom Seder. It was a process of, of teaching and it was terrific. But she called me after and she said, it was so sad for her to set the table for Passover for two people, you know, and she was so happy to just see our ragtag family from all corners of the country get together for an hour to read the Haggadah and laugh a little bit. And it didn't matter what the picture looked like or, you know, who had adjusted their camera or who had actually made Passover food and who was eating a bowl of cereal. It was just, <laughs> it was all about the connection. Yeah. I, you know, connection is the antidote to depression and isolation. Like when we're feeling depressed or sad or just stressed out, we feel alone in that stress. It's a very me sort of activity. But when we reach out and remember, oh, there are other people all around me. I belong to a community. This burden is not just mine. Everybody can carry a little bit of the water. That's when we remember that there are people around us. They, a lot of us right now are going through this roller coaster of emotions, but we're not alone. And so I, I think that's the, the most essential part in this is to reach out to your community so that they feel less alone, but you too will feel less alone because you'll feel embraced by, by the community. You talk a little bit in the book about financial stress, and there are a lot of people undergoing an awful lot of financial stress right now for a whole bunch of reasons. What's your best advice for dealing with it? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this question. I think you know what I dealt with was a lot of financial shame shame and blame. I felt really ashamed of my parents' finances. They were in boom and bust economies my whole life. 
I felt tied to all their decisions and doomed. And it took me a long time to realize the role that money was playing in my life. It, it was like a silent main character there, but never really discussed. And I think in this time, as people are dealing with financial stress, the absolute most important thing to do is to acknowledge it and not throw shame and blame onto it. You know, to remember that this is a once in a hundred years pandemic that you had no control over. None of us asked for a pandemic. This was not something that could be totally planned for. And even if you maybe now are looking back and saying, I wish I had saved more, I, I wish, I wish, I wish, guess what? You can't wish your way out of this. So even that line of thinking is not useful. So I'd say forgive yourself, tend to your emotional health. I always like to journal through things like this, just writing out. If you don't want to commit to a full journaling practice, write out how you feel about money right now, any shame you're feeling, any blame you're feeling, so that it's on a piece of paper and not constantly swirling in your head. And I would actually recommend some positive self-talk, like, this is not my fault. I am not to blame. I will be okay. Because we will all be okay. You know, for the most part, if we're, as long as we're healthy, it's going to write itself. And so the first thing is really tending to your emotional, financial health. That would be my very first thing. How did you get to the point where you could acknowledge and then deal with your own money story? I haven't really considered that. I think money was the only value in my household growing up. If we had it, we were quote unquote good. And if we didn't have it, we were shameful, bad, everything is destroyed. I mean, the number of times I heard we are doomed growing up, like my sister and I laugh about it now. And I actually in college asked my friends, I said, do your parents ever tell you they're doomed and that this is a financial crisis we'll never recover from? And they were all laughed. Like their reaction was just, wait, what? And that made me realize, oh, wait, no, I've gone through a weird thing. Like, <laughs> like they had, you know, like I am the outlier. This wasn't normal. I've got to deal with this. It, it actually might have been that, that I asked my friends, is this normal? And the answer was a resounding, no, that is not normal. And I realized I didn't want negative talk about money and money being the most important thing in my life to be my story. And so I decided to change it. But I think it was hearing from other people that really was the impetus. You mentioned your sister and you are now able to laugh about something that wasn't really all that funny. And we're living through a time that is not really all that funny. How do we find the levity and the humor in times like this? I think there are two essential things. One is to find some fun memes and videos about this just to break the tension. You know, I actually have a friend who's really, I'm not good at finding memes. So I texted a friend who always seems to be the guy who has it. And I said, hey, when you find something, can you just send it to me, please? So I reached out to a friend for comedy, even though I work in comedy. So I'd say like, reach out to your, to your group and because we all know someone like that who's always got the funny article and usually I ignore it or delete it, but right now I really need it. Um, and the second thing is to find one thing in your day to enjoy every single day. 
because this actually is our life. Our life doesn't get to hit pause just because we're going through a crisis. Our life continues in the crisis. So if we can't enjoy it every day, what a waste. I mean, just genuinely, what a waste of time. So what is that for you? So it's, it can be really small. Yesterday, I decided that I want to watch um, a lot of great, quote unquote, great classic movies. So instead of writing an essay, which I thought I absolutely should, and I need to be so productive, even though there's a pandemic, I said, I'm going to watch On the Waterfront, and I'm going to make myself a big bowl of popcorn. And that is going to be my enjoyable thing for today. And let me tell you, it was decadent. It was the afternoon. I was watching a movie. I felt so good. But there can be much smaller things, a bath washing your hair, putting on makeup for literally no reason other than you wanted to do it. Um, somebody DM'd me that they were spraying themselves with perfume, that their kids had taken over the house. They had no time to themselves, but they could take one moment to spritz their favorite perfume on their wrists. I love it. Tara Schuster, thank you. I think you were the antidote that we all needed. And this was my enjoyable thing for today. So I really appreciate you being with us. Oh, thank you so much. It was such a, an honor to be here. Oh, the book is By Yourself, The Effing Lilies. And we will be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. And her money's Catherine Tuggle has joined me. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. Thank you for teeing up that show. That was really, really terrific. I hope our listeners liked it as much as I do. Yeah, same. I follow her on Instagram. She's a really good Instagram follow if you don't already follow her. And um, I was inspired by the title of her book because I also would always forego the flowers at Trader Joe's because I just thought it was such a frivolous luxury and that $7 would be so much better spent elsewhere. And I think I was probably 35 before I started buying myself the effing, in my case, daisies, but you know, (laughs) same concept. And I try to always have fresh flowers now and uh, it still feels like a luxury, but it's now become a luxury that I can embrace and that I feel worthy of. So when I saw her book title, I was like, I need to hear from her. Yeah, no, she was terrific. I think the whole concept of self-care, I mean, I remember the first time I heard it. I don't know how many of our listeners remember Hayden, but Hayden was very big on self-care and she would talk a lot about self-care and self-talk. And I had never heard the phrase before. And then all of a sudden I started looking for it and I realized the New York Times had a whole column on it. And I do think it's relatively new, but I like the way that she described it, that it's not the facial, it's having a drawer full of socks that don't have holes in them. Like that, that makes sense to me. Yeah, totally. Because vacations, I also like the way she referenced Tulum because vacations are a completely different animal. Vacations are something that you do a few times a year. Self-care is something that has to be done daily. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's recognizing what you need, too, I think is really important. Recognizing what sets you on edge, recognizing when you're the one beating yourself up. Totally. 
I know we've got a bunch of questions from our listeners and I want to make sure we get to them, but I was wondering as I was talking to Tara, what's your favorite form of self-care? Do you have one? That's such a good question. I would say yoga. I try to do a lot of yoga. Specifically, I like in-person classes. And during the quarantine, I've obviously been doing a lot more at-home yoga, as have millions of other people. And there's something about the camaraderie of the classroom that cannot be replicated in your home. Mm -hmm. And I think that is my self-care. Yeah, I think for me, it's the exercise. I mean, I, I, I know that maybe that is, I don't know, a common one. But when I do it, I get through the day without being cranky. And when I don't do it, I'm cranky by four o'clock in the afternoon. Like I just, I think my brain needs to sweat as strange as that sounds. I totally get that. Do you try to do it in the mornings? Yeah. If I don't do it in the mornings, it doesn't happen. I have to get up and do it. And usually my trick is that I put on the running clothes immediately when I wake up or the exercise clothes, and then I don't get out of them until I do it. And I don't really like hanging out in them for all that long. So usually by mid-morning, it has, it has happened. There you go. Good philosophy. <laughs> all right, let's do mailbag. Our first note comes to us from Kathy. She writes, I have a question that I have not heard asked. I have filed my 2019 federal tax return, which I mailed three weeks ago. The IRS has not yet received my return, and if they did not receive it before my stimulus check is to be issued, they'll base the amount I receive on my 2018 return. While I remain hopeful that it will be received before the stimulus check is issued, the problem is that my adjusted income for 2018 is over $75,000, but my 2019 return reflects income that is quite a bit lower. I asked an IRS representative if I should e-file a duplicate copy of my 2019 return so that it would be received immediately, but I was advised not to do this since it might be flagged as fraud. Is there anything I can do to be sure that my stimulus check is based on my 2019 return, or will there be some sort of appeal process to adjust the amount that I would have received had my return been received sooner and processed faster? I'd love your guidance on this confusing situation that has caused me so much stress. Thank you. So Kathy, if you thought you were confused before, wait until I answer this question. And you asked a number of questions within your question. So let me just say, first of all, I'm going with the IRS representative. If they told you you should not file another return because it could be flagged as fraud, then do not file another return. I am a little confused as to why three weeks later they don't have your return. This is one of those reasons why I think everybody should just e-file and elect direct deposit of any refund coming your way. It's so much quicker. There is a lot less room for error. But this stimulus payment of up to $1,200 for anybody who makes up to $75,000 in income is actually a fully refundable tax credit based on your 2020 income. And I know that sounds like, whoa, you just threw another whole year in there. But that's exactly what it is because we are in 2020 right now. The IRS is basing it on 2019 because that's the last record they have. And they're basing it on 2018 if they don't have 2019 because that's the last record 
they have. But the deal is you are not going to have to do anything as far as filing extra paperwork for an adjustment. As long as your 2020 income is still in the range, you are going to get whatever you didn't get of that $1,200. So the credit starts phasing out once you hit $75,000 in income. For every additional $100 that you earn, it goes down by $5 until you get to $99,000, and then it's gone completely. Whatever you didn't get because they were looking at your 2018 income. As long as your 2020 income is in the range, you will get that when you file your 2020 return at the beginning of next year. And should your 2020 income be even higher and put you further out of range, you are not going to have to pay that money back. So I don't want you to be stressed out about that as well. Bottom line is, don't do anything right now. Um, you're going to get what you get based on whatever they have most recently, and then you'll adjust when you file your return for this year. Does that make sense, Catherine? Because that was a lot of data. No, it really does. They're going to base it on what they've got, and then it'll all come out in the wash at the end of the year. You put it a lot better than I did. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Next letter. Next letter. Our next note is from Mary Pat. She writes, Hi, Jean. I'm a longtime subscriber and listener to Her Money and know if there is anyone who can provide solid financial advice during these unusual times, it is you. My daughter is a 2020 high school graduate and has been accepted to her REACH schools. So proud of her. The higher price tag comes with these prestigious universities and we do not qualify for any need-based contributions. We have $200,000 saved in her college fund, but now it looks like we're going to need an additional $90,000 more over the course of the next four years. Of course, she's pursuing scholarships, but I'm wondering if we should take advantage of the 10% penalty being waived on IRA distributions and move some funds into her college account. My husband and I are 58 years old and have approximately $1.5 million in retirement assets. Would this be a better option than loans? Thanks so much for any advice. So I would do a couple of things. First, I would not go into your retirement assets, even though under the CARES Act, you have the ability to do that without penalty. I would instead look at loans, both federal loans, which she'll be eligible for, and private loans if the federal ones are not enough. And I do that because interest rates are so low right now that those loans are going to be cheaper than they were before we went through this process and before the Federal Reserve cut interest rates to zero. The second thing that I would look at is your current cash flow. I know that you've put away a certain amount of money to pay for college, but I'd take a look at your budget and I'd see if there is any wiggle room where you could come out of pocket essentially to help supplement what she needs. And the final thing that I do is, and this is true for anybody whose situation has changed based on what's going on with coronavirus, call the school and talk to the financial aid office. If you're receiving financial aid and you feel like based on current circumstances, you need more, this is the time to call the schools and ask for it. They are 
ready for these calls. They know that the need is greater than it was. They know that the ratio of money coming through loans versus grants may have to be adjusted. They also know that some people will just need bigger aid packages. Don't wait. Get in line and make sure that you do that as soon as absolutely possible. And congratulations on your daughter and being accepted to all of these great schools. I am thrilled for you and thrilled for her and so excited about her future. Truly, it's such an accomplishment. And you guys did such a great job saving for college already. I mean, the fact that you have as much as you have now is huge. Absolutely. We've got one more. One more. Last note comes from Caitlin. She writes, hi, Jean. Thank you to you and Catherine for producing guidance for us during this crazy time. I'm thankful to be in a really good situation right now, and I'd like some advice on how to deal with some cash. I'm 28 and rent a studio, which is all right for now, but I know I'll want a real bedroom soon enough. I was considering buying due to relatively high rental prices in my area. I moved my down payment fund to cash prior to the March downturn, and I have $43,000 in cash and what is now $31,000 in a 50-50 stock fund bond fund account. My goal is to buy three to five years down the road. So what should I do with the cash in the interim? The money is currently in a high yield savings account. If it's helpful, I'll give you a peek at the rest of my finances. I contribute almost 30% of my income to my retirement accounts. I overpay my car loan each month and have $12,000 remaining on that. And I have built up a $20,000 emergency fund. Thank you so much. Sure. And you sound like you are in tremendously good shape. Yep. Um, I think you got really lucky that you moved your down payment fund to cash prior to the March downturn. I don't know where it was before, but if it was in stocks, you just saved yourself an awful lot of money. If you're looking to buy anywhere in the three to five year time frame. I would not put it anywhere other than that high yield savings account that it's in. You don't want to put it back in and then have the markets go down and lose some of your down payment fund. It's far better to deal with the mediocre returns that you're getting on that down payment fund in the high yield savings account. The one thing I would do is maybe think about shifting your timetable. Mortgage rates are incredibly low. We are headed into a buyer's market for real estate. You are doing so well putting money away for your future. Maybe you get the bedroom now. You know, maybe if if you think you're going to be in the same geographic location, you think about buying a little bit earlier, I would start to run the numbers on what it would cost you to buy a place versus to continue to live in the place that you're renting. And I'd see what that looks like because it sounds like, at least to me, that you've got a real opportunity staring you in the face. That sounds like great advice. You're totally right about the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell exactly where she is. It sounds like a city, maybe New York, maybe somewhere else. But you know, if it is enough for a down payment in it's not enough typically for a down payment in New York, but it, it may be enough for a down payment in many, many communities. And I would take a look at if it is. And I think in the months to come, especially there may be some real deals to be had out there. No question. Thank you so much for your great questions. Catherine, if they've got them, where should they send them? Mailbag at hermoney.com. 
Fantastic. And in today's Thrive, yes, good news has been a little bit hard to come by lately, but we are very excited about something that came out of the CARES Act, and it's something that you haven't heard about very likely. For the first time in history, a provision under this bill allows all of us to use the funds in our health savings accounts and flexible spending accounts to pay for period products. The specific products that are now considered medical expenses include tampons, pads, liners, cups, and sponges. When you use the funds in your account to buy these items, not only are you spending pre-tax dollars, you're paying without spending sales tax so you can save as much combined as 30 to 40% off the sticker price for these products. Other than this being great news for women, it also means now may be a really good time to add a little bit more money to your HSAs and FSAs to be sure you've got enough to cover the purchase of these products in addition to the other medicine and supplies you'll need throughout the year. While the CARES Act isn't permanent, its provisions are meant to help see us through this crisis, it certainly opens the door to have these essential products classified as medical expenses on a permanent basis. For now, we've got 15 years. So enjoy swiping that HSA debit card on your purchase of tampons and pads and all the other stuff, and make sure to hang on to those receipts. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Tara Schuster for making us laugh and for inspiring us to create a life that we truly love. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Ordinarily, we record our podcast out of CDM Sound Studios, but today we're using Zoom and a Yeti mic from the comfort of our homes. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through PRX. Hope you'll join us next week. We'll be back with another great Her Money guest. Thanks so much for being here, and we'll talk soon. Mm-hmm.